Hello, everybody. Welcome to this episode of Mind the Gap, making education and work across the globe with me, Tom Sherrington, and Emma Turner. Hello, Emma. Hello, Tom. Are you well? Really well, yeah, really good. I'm really excited to talk to Aisha. So we're really delighted this evening to be talking to Aisha Thomas. Hello, welcome to Mind the Gap. Thank you very much for having me. I'm honoured to be here, so thank you very much. Yeah, well, we, we we wanted to talk to you about this. You know, you've done so many interesting things, but what, what we often do is just get people to just tell people listening on the podcast or on the video a bit about yourself, you know, where you're working at the moment, and and then we'll kick it off from there. So, Aisha, what, just tell us, you know, those basic things. How, how are you um, set at the moment in terms of working and everything? Yeah, no problem at all. So currently, I run an organisation called Representation Matters. And the organisation really is committed to kind of helping different leadership teams in different settings, primarily education, on their journey in regards to anti-racist practice, but also in regards to wider inclusion. So we provide keynotes, workshops, training sessions. And the idea is, is that we give you a really immersive experience that allows you to hold the mirror to your own prejudice and bias. And we firmly believe that everybody in society should have the opportunity to be themselves, to show up authentically and be the best version of who they can be. But how can that be possible when we have all of these biases and prejudice really rooted in the normalization of society? And it's becoming a barrier, essentially. So we really try and help schools and leadership teams within those schools recognize where this exists in education and begin to truly dismantle some of this problematic practice that we see on a daily basis. So now, so I mean, you used to, I mean, in the bio on on, on your website, repmatters.co.uk, you, 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 it says that you you studied law, but then went into into education. Yes. So what what was your subject? What you what were you a teacher of? So this is really interesting. So um, in terms of my teaching area, I very much focused on PSHE and citizenship. So probably makes quite a lot of sense that I would choose that because it was very much about me thinking, how do young people become global citizens? But my focus primarily actually in school was leading on safeguarding children in care and being a designated teacher for those children, as well as inclusion. So any children with um, special educational needs. And that was really kind of pastoral. That was my focus whilst in school. And so it's just just a full time thing now, is it like? Yeah. So for the last three years. So it was a big decision because I'd been at my previous school for 10 years just under and it was a big decision for me to leave as my an assistant principal and then go into educational practice from a very different perspective we are now three years in you know things are really flourishing it's going really really well and we now have the opportunity to kind of spread our knowledge and our experience and good practice up and down the country in different educational settings because I, I was listening this morning, Aisha, to your journey into education, and I was I was actually out on a walk listening to your TED talk, and I stopped walking when you descri- when you described the moment where you thought, "Imagine if I could be that teacher." Yes. Um, I, um, could you just kind of tell that part of the story because it's such a it was just such a beautiful moment. It literally stopped me in my tracks when I was listening today. <laughs> oh, awesome! Thank you, Emma. I mean, it was a really interesting moment. So I used to volunteer for the Prince's Trust. um, And when we were uh, very much encouraged from a legal perspective, go and do stuff pro bono work, go and do volunteer work. And mine was very much, how can I help? And I went with the Prince's Trust. 
And my focus of my work was very much about helping young people who were in prison transition back into education or back into the wider community. And I was primarily working with a number of young boys who were in prison. And it was quite interesting because that experience really exposed me to something I'd never experienced before. I'd never realized what it must be like for a child or a young person to be in a prison context. And there was a particular young man who I spent quite a lot of time with. We built up a rapport. I would go and visit him and kind of do that mentorship. And we were just talking one day and just literally out of the blue, he kind of stopped me in my tracks and said, imagine if you were my teacher. Perhaps if you were my teacher, I wouldn't be in prison today. I didn't quite get what he meant. Like in that moment, I was thinking, me, maybe your teacher. I, I don't know. As far as I was concerned, I was going to be this international lawyer. I had no interest in education. That was not going to be my thing. But what he made me realize in that moment, he said, when I think about representation, when I think about cultural significance, everyone in power is racialized as white. When I think about white men, so being the governor of the prisoner, when I think about white prison officers, when I think about my teachers, when I think about authority, police officers, the entire judiciary system, he didn't see anybody that looked like him. And then he talked about his options being very limited to kind of entertainment, media, sport and like crime. And he said, that's why I ended up seeing myself. That's the path why I ended up taking. And what he made me realize in that moment, that representation was so important that if you don't see yourself, can you perhaps find yourself just falling into the narratives that relate to people that look like you? And so I don't think he meant me, his teacher per se, but I think what I symbolized was the person in authority who came into this space to talk to him, had a different background, a different lifestyle, a different way of thinking. And I wasn't the mother of another prisoner in the prison at the time. Instead, I was someone coming in to help him, empower him and put him on a different pathway. And that's when I realized that if I continued my legal career here, I'd only ever be able to help children once it had gone bad, they'd already been in the system. But what if I could dismantle things? What if I could change the structure of their educational thinking before they got to that point? And that's when I made one of the biggest decisions of my life, which was to leave my legal career behind and start a new journey and then transition into education. And that was a massive step for me moving forward. Wow. Do you are you still in touch with him? No, and this is the thing. So it was funny. When I did the TED Talk, they wanted to find him. But as you can yeah. imagine, for legal reasons, they can't release his name mm. or his information. So whilst I got as close as finding out which prison, they would never release the information due to GDPR. So I've never been able to thank him. I've never been able to say to him, do you realise that you completely changed the trajectory of my life? I've never been able to have that conversation. So I almost have to just put it out in the atmosphere and just say to him, thank you. You changed my life. And it's, it's his reach with that one comment is so huge because you've gone on to do work that then had that ripple effect across the sector. So that one conversation with one person, the impact of that must be enormous. It's massive. And imagine if he knew his significance. How yeah. different would that be for his life if he knew the one thing he said has now impacted educators and children up and down the country? Because now he led me to start my campaign about better representation for those racialized as black and brown in education, but also better curriculum for children so that they could see themselves. And that was all because of the seed that he sowed years ago. That's amazing. <laughs> it's got so many layers to it. I mean, in, fact, in, in our podcast, you know guest list you know we've had various people over the time so i mean 
citizenship. I mean, Laura McInerney was a, she's a, a citizenship teacher. But we've we've spoken to Benny Cara about diversity in the curriculum, and also Diana Asagi. She's done a lot of DNI work, and and that and we talked a lot about this. Now, I, so I'm really interested in this. You've got this amazing project called Beyond the Twenty Six. Yes, and there's a, a really good people can look at this on 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 YouTube or on your website. There's a great clip of you doing this BBC into the documentary sort of the clip and you even interview your own head teacher at the time which is like it's so and it's kind of wild because you're just sort of there saying why are there so few black teachers in bristol so tell people you know because i could i could say it for you but what what are the what is the 26 what's the significance of that number okay so back in 2018 or should i say just before that the running me trust did a report on education and did a specific focus on bristol and so in 2017, they found that in Bristol, it was one of the most um, racially divisive cities in the UK. They found that there were lots of issues within our education here in Bristol. And they really focused on the experience of parents, the experience of the curriculum and what it meant to be a teacher in the Bristol context. The BBC then approached me and said, we can see that you're beginning to kind of do a bit of work in this area. Would you come and do a documentary with us where we really began to unpick what this really did look like for Bristol? And so we did a bit of an investigatory type piece and did some research. And then we found that at that time, there were only 26 black teachers out of the 19 state secondary schools in Bristol. And what was really significant about that is because we've got over 1300 teachers and there were only 26 out of the 19 schools, half of which had no teachers racialized as Black at all, and yet we knew 30% of the child population were now from Black and mixed heritage backgrounds, and yet it wasn't being replicated within the education system. And so what Beyond the 26 talked about was that that was the line that was drawn in 2018, but what could we do after that point to amplify the work of other Black and Brown teachers in education or other Black and Brown practitioners so rather than just looking at the role of the teacher, but who else in education who represents this particular demographic and community, but their voices are not being heard. So Beyond the 26 was about recruitment and retention for the future, but it was also about recognising all the other roles that are happening within education that are silent. So whether that's mentors, pastoral support, receptionists, anybody who is making a difference to the experiences of those children in our schools. And so we really took that opportunity to give them the chance to say, well, why representation was really important to them. And then there were like a number of blogs and those videos and lots of different talks that really allowed people to share their lived experience. So what was really important to me was that because I was the face of it, it wasn't about Aisha's experience. What was really important for me was for people to see that we're not a homogenous group and that all of these different voices needed to be amplified. And that was something really beautiful, which came out of Beyond the 26. And that's something that that you've got in all of your work, isn't it? Everywhere I looked at everything to do with you, it's 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 amplifying the voices of everybody else. You, you find you and you you kind of introduce everybody else. You say, look at these wonderful people, listen to their stories, hear their perspectives. And that's sort of replicated across all of your work, isn't it? It's so important. I truly believe in collaboration. And I don't think any of us can do this as an island, as a single person. And when I think about my educational experience, it's about the wisdom and the guidance of those before me. It's about sowing the seeds and the grassroots of those who are to come. 
But in this present moment is about recognizing who is here now. And I often talk about the phrase that we do it for the love, not the likes, because what's really important is that a lot of this can become a popularity contest. A lot of this can come about, you know, who's got the most tweets or who's got the most followers, you know, and and that's, I'm, I'm not interested in all of that stuff. That's not, not of interest to me. What's really of interest to me is making sure that people get to tell their story of their true lived experience. It's about showcasing as much talent as I can, that children can genuinely see these role models existing within education. But more than that, it's giving a sense of value. Imagine growing up your entire life not feeling like you're valued because of your racialized existence, that your voice isn't important, that nobody cares. But if I can give you a platform, even if it's just one, so that somebody listens to your truth, that's money can't buy. And that's why we center that in everything that we do. It's about that true, authentic voice and giving people space to amplify. It's a really so, powerful feature of, of the book. So, I mean, I think we should mention that like right now because I've, I've got it here on my on my Kindle here. Can you, can yes, you yes, you we can see it. We can see it. <laughs> yes, we can see it. Awesome. It's, like, it's and it's so it's it's such a powerful book because it's like a sort of it's like a it's like testimony. It's not just yes. a, it's not like a theoretical book. It's like the yes. voices are there and you have this beautiful kind of theme of, you know, it's a subheading lived experience of and introduce a person. Yes. And one of the ones that really, really got to me, and to me this exemplifies the whole issue in a way, is uh, one of one of your uh, contributors talking about being a teenager and yes. being be, doing the classic kind of slavery story in, in, you know, history of slavery and being presented with the image of of slaves being you know crammed like sardines into a ship yeah and being a teenager and having a pretty full-on emotional reaction to that yeah and the teacher kind of calling them up in front of the class saying not to tell them off about their sort of disengagement wow yes rather than saying this must be a big deal for you and I'm going to give you some slack or just uh, even uh, anticipate and they're, they're quite forceful because it's funny what what she says is you shouldn't really be teaching this if you're not ready to cope with the fact that some of the people you teach might have an emotional reaction to it i thought that was just cool power and so what i mean that, that to me was just one of the many stories in that. oh and it's you know on that particular point what we're talking about here is racialized trauma and it's really important because sometimes in the name of education we exploit someone's trauma but what we have to be very mindful of is that if you're going to open up the wound and you're going to expose somebody's lived experience, then you have to think about how you're going to close it and how you're going to support them. So certainly when we provide advice and consultancy to schools, we say, if you are going to look at texts that are problematic and traumatic, are you thinking about how you're going to handle that for all in the space? So actually, are you writing home to your parents and carers? Are you talking to the children about what they're going to experience? Are you providing any aftercare for those students once they've been through that lesson? Are you considering what their thoughts and their processes are now you've given them this seed of knowledge? Because often as educators, you might be for the first time exposing a child to a narrative that they've never heard of, a narrative that they don't know. And we talk about trauma being in three stages. We talk about the vicarious trauma that children can experience. So sometimes I might be in an experience where even though I haven't lived it, I am feeling it. And just because you're talking about it as an abstract thing doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. 
And, you know, a good example of this may well be if we take the current British educational context. Many of you might have heard of Child Q, but if you haven't, Child Q was a young girl, 15 years of age, racialized as black, attending a school in London. And she went through a pretty horrific racialized experience because I'm not aware of who's listening to the call. I don't want to trigger anyone by going into the detail, but you, you can look it up. But it was quite a traumatic experience. When teachers are having this discussion, when children are seeing this on the TV and social media, are you prepared for that child when they step into your classroom and they're having that vicarious experience? So when you're normalizing the conversation as a bit of current affairs information, perhaps in tutor time or PSHE, you've got a black girl in your classroom going, that could be me. That could still be me. What if that happens? And nobody's prepared for that level of trauma that's happening in real time. When we think about what we see on the news and the TV, if we take just what's happened with all of the police killings and things we've seen, and I'm not trying to get into the politics of it, but just visually seeing the continuation and the violence towards the black body. Do you think that these things aren't affecting our children on an everyday basis when they're stepping into your educational settings? And so when in the name of curriculum development and name of curriculum delivery, we are telling the stories, we don't know what we're triggering. So it's really important that if you're going to talk about these narratives, we understand the historical context, what it means for us today and what it means for their future. And that just because something happened 400 years ago doesn't mean that today's events are not fast forwarding it today to their current lived experience. We wouldn't do this in any other type of trauma. And yet when it comes to racialized trauma, we somehow use it as a tool of education sometimes to prevent it happen again, but sometimes to justify the explanation of the experience. I don't need to see a slave ship to know that harm has been caused. You're listening to Mind the Gap, presented by John Cat Educational. Over the past six decades, John Cat has supported teachers and school leaders with research-based, easy-to-use professional development books for the entire faculty. Visit us.johncatbookshop.com in the United States or at johncatbookshop.com or elsewhere across the globe to find the latest titles. I'm so interested in this because I always think, you know, if people have good intentions, this is and they want to do well, of course, it's an important story. It's, it, it's the story of, of, our, of our nation, of Britain. It's part of, of British history, and we have to understand our country as it is now. And all the story. We need to know where everyone is pathways were to come here and everything and to be part of our, our society so you you have to talk it's, it's, it's an important part of everyone's education so what's your advice then to school which to say that we got we're gonna we're gonna do the whole um slave trade story because it's part of the empire and everything else and it's a part of understanding racism so what's there but we don't know the students the students in front of us do we assume that they might be uh, experiences trauma or do we do we talk to them individually? I mean, I just want to get a sense of the kind I of think it's, I think it's two different things. I think school's decision to continue to teach empire is a decision that's, you know, is something that all schools do at the moment. It is what it is. But I think if you're going to have the conversation, whether or not you have individual conversations or a collective classroom conversation, the acknowledgement of the violence and trauma that you're about to discuss needs to be acknowledged. Schools need to be preparing their children to hear that level of violence. 
is not a historical story, which is, you know, like a whimsical fairy tale. This really happened to people and the legacy of it very much is in existence today. So if you're going to tell the story, you have to tell the story properly, but you have to prepare for that traumatic experience. But my other issue with teaching this narrative is it's often the only narrative. Mm. So if you are going to teach about empowerment and, and, and you want to teach about positivity, then let's do that alongside those lessons about empire and about violence and about enslavement. Because what you don't want to do is perpetuate that mental prisonment for those young children who go, oh, so I'm a legacy of a slave. Oh, that's what you did to my people. And before you know it, in front of you, they're just shrinking and shrinking and shrinking because they realize the reality of where their lineage have been put in terms of society. But if I'm hearing that in the context, perhaps of my history lesson, my geography lesson, even my RE lesson, but outside that, I'm also hearing powerful things, powerful representation, powerful contributions. I understand that my existence isn't concentrated into 400 years and that we understand the global extent of the contribution of the global global majority and that's the bit that schools are missing out on we talk about the pain and the trauma but we don't talk about the abundance and the success and the value and therein lies the problem because you mentioned it in your in your ted talk don't you about imagine if they'd heard this inventor or that person or um the the success of this person and i was listening to it thinking I've heard of that person. I haven't heard of that person before. I have heard of this one. I haven't heard of that one before. And it's like you say, it's about that richness of discussion, isn't it? It's balance. It's balance. And I would never say that we shouldn't talk about things like the Holocaust or don't talk about empire, because these are real violent things that have happened in our history. And they contribute to who we are today and why we are what we are. So it's not about erasing history but it's about the way you teach, so the pedagogy. How are we teaching what we're teaching? But also, what is the wider curriculum that's also going to uphold the narrative for those who have been racially minoritized so that they still see value in their history and also see themselves projected positively in all aspects of life? And often they're just hearing the trauma. Mm. So, I mean, to be... So essentially, I mean, this is, and it sounds so sensible to me. That it's like you, you need to basically, you know, foreground the whole story and say, "Look, guys, that's, that's, there's some really big, big issues here, and some people might find this traumatic, but we're not going to assume you are. But yeah, we got let's face it. And if you are, then there's like stuff that we can talk about afterwards. So yeah, an acknowledgement, but also then it's in a wider frame where we're also. I think Benny Cara talks about, you know, victim narratives being, you know only one part of, of a story you've got to make sure that that different groups are representing positive stories as you know to, to the large extent and like you're saying so that's right. some design work so that's I and mean, that's so interesting the representation uh, in the curriculum is vital so absolutely vital i think this is so important sorry just that emma because i just think this is another important yeah. factor what we also forget to do in this is we just think about what we're teaching children racialized as black and brown. What we're not doing is thinking about what stories are we perpetuating to children racialized as white. If we are saying we want to dismantle this racial superiority and hierarchy, and yet you're doing a whole bunch of lessons just reminding children of how white people were treated and held up as a higher value in society, and you're not addressing that, what are you reaffirming to those children racialized as white? And so often the focus is quite 
quite focus on the experience of the, the, the black and brown children. I get that, and that's important. But I also want to know, what are those children racialized as white people? And how are they seeing their responsibility? And how do they look at their ancestors? And, and how do they show up in the space? Because adults are having conversations with me and going, oh, Aisha, I feel such shame. I feel such guilt. I feel such horror about my ancestors. And if that's the projection that adults have, and that's what they're feeling, are we really thinking about what white children are thinking? And it's not to say we shy away from it. We absolutely need to have the conversation, but we need to be aware of some of the narratives that they might be creating, particularly if you have parents or carers at home who are not in alignment with the fact that we should be doing this anti-racism work and in fact think the opposite. And so school might be the only time some of these narratives are challenged for our children. And we need to be prepared for that conversation too. Do you think there's a work that needs to be done by teachers as well to really find out about children's experiences and not to assume what their experiences are as well? Because I'm just thinking about when you said about uh, multiple, you know, everybody has multiple identities, what you identify as or with. Um, and it's about not assuming what the lived experiences of those children in front of you might be or have be or they, they may have extended family who've got a completely different experience just as you're talking I'm thinking actually this is so big because that's you can't just assume a child's lived experience from can we do can I do a real life example of this with you and you might have read a bit about this in the book but I want to do it with you live on the podcast because it's a really good example of how we need to understand perspectives all right so I want both of you right now in this second in real time to think of four words that you would use to describe yourself. It can be any four words you would like, but I just want you to note down in front of you four words that you would use to describe yourself. And I just want you to note down your four words, not your partner, not a friend or colleague, but four words that you would use yourself to describe. All right. <laughs> the first thing that comes to mind, don't. Don't overthink it. The first four words that come to mind. All right. Now, when you've written those four words, I'm going to give you three words. And of these three words, I want you to write them down if they are applicable to any of your four descriptors. Okay. okay. So the first one is pain. If there's a painful moment, a painful situation, any kind of painful connotations to any of the four words you've chosen, I want you to write the word pain. The second one is proud. So if any of the four words relate to being proud, a proud moment, a proud situation, I want you to write the word proud. And the third one is stereotype. If any of your four words have a stereotype, whether you subscribe to that stereotype or not, I just want you to write the word stereotype. Now, when I first created this activity and I delivered this with students and, and staff all of the time, I was so sure everybody would do the same as me. So my four words, black, woman, mother, educator. Those are my four words. When I think about pain, I attach that to being black because of some of my racialized experiences. When I think about being proud, I attach that to being a mother. When I think about stereotype, I attach that to being an educator because I'd been subject to quite a lot of criticism and stereotypical views about what an assistant principal should look like. 
clearly not one with an afro, not one with a scaffold in her ear, not one that was racialized as black, had a lot of pushback about my identity markers. Now, I assumed everyone would be the same as me. Everybody would be using nouns. But then I realized people were using verbs and adjectives. So they were writing words like friendly, happy, dedicated, caring, committed, all other words to describe their character more than an identity marker. And it got me thinking, well, why? So why is it that I am focused on my identity in that way and others were not? So I did a bit of research. And what research showed is that those of us who are often part of marginalized communities, those of us who are subscribing to social constructs, be it of choice or not, we often use those identity markers, Black, ADHD, gay, Muslim, we use those labels. Even in one of my training groups, somebody said Welsh because they didn't want their white racialized experience to be attributed to being English, so they wrote Welsh. I want you to share with us what you put on the paper because I want you to think about where you were starting from in terms of your identity. So I'm going to put you on the spot first, Tom. What were your four words? <laughs> Go on, Tom, tell us. <laughs> well, I did have one now, which was I, I wrote... Um, author because I kind of and that is a bit I'm, I'm a bit proud of the fact that I was a teacher and I, I'm an author yeah. but I, I wrote I wrote geeky yes yeah. <laughs> love it I, I wrote driven yeah and, and I wrote energetic right okay did you write pain towards any of them did you put pain for any of them no okay did you put proud next to any of them no but I put stereotype next to geeky, but that's a bit soft. <laughs> okay, okay, cool. Right, Emma, your turn. Okay, well, I've got Estonian. Yeah. Because that's where my family's from. Mum, mum, mm-hmm. teacher, daughter. Oh, right. you went how, Identity. And how interesting is that? And the reason why I, I like this activity as perspective, because what it makes you realise is that Where someone's initial focus is will often determine how they engage with the topic. Whatever it is you want to talk about, you're going to centralize your experience on your identity markers. Doesn't mean I'm good and you're bad, you're bad and you're good. But what it means is we're coming to the conversation in a different place. Now, Emma, there's a reason you wanted us to know that you're Estonian. Is it because you're racialized as white and you didn't want us to assume that you were English because you don't have an accent? Why why did you tell us that? I'm I'm really proud of my background but also I find that it's hugely misunderstood um, because mm-hmm. of the persecution of the Estonian people and the fact they were sent to death camps and nobody knows about it and my granddad was in the death camps and you know it was the and the whole kind of the freedom fighter story of Estonia and I'm really fiercely proud of my background but nobody really a knows about where even where it is a lot of the time um, and because it's such a small, proud people, I really, I've been brought up by my Estonian mum to be really proud of that. So when anybody says, are you English or are you Estonian? I find it really hard because I was born here. But my mum's influence, I'm genuinely, if you split me down the middle, I've got my dad's Brummy side and my mum's Estonian side. But I do identify very much with that Estonian culture because it's part of me. We speak the language, we, we dance, we sing, we do... That's how I live. (laughs) And it's so important because actually, then when we're in a conversation about xenophobia, for example, 
it's going to make you feel some type of way because it's going to have a natural reaction to you. Now, I'm not saying, Tom, you wouldn't care, but your core beliefs and values, how you see yourself, these things are affecting us differently. I walk into a space, whether I like it or not, you can see my skin tone. So not everybody gets to choose even whether they want to project their identity. I could say I was driven. I could say I'm compassionate. I could say I was, I could say all of those different things. But what if I don't even get to start with that? Because I have to start with the things that society have deemed that are important and the labels that I wear around my neck. And what if those labels then stop me getting into doors before we even begin the conversation? So when people talk about this idea of privilege, they're talking about those of us who get to start where we want and those of us who have a start projected on us because of those structural disadvantages and those societal views and opinions and those social constructs. And that's why I want to do this activity with you. So I think it's so interesting. I mean, yeah, I mean, it, it would have been a long down, way down the list before I said, you know, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a white man. I mean, there are some other things which, you, you know, are sort of private things that are kind of I probably wouldn't even share because I think, because I don't feel they define me, but they're sort of part of you, that kind of thing, where there is pain and stuff. But they're, they're sort yes. of, like, they're behind, like, you know, bereavement things. But they're sort mm-hmm. of, and they're things which you can't see, but they come yes. up, you know, in all, all the time. But they're, but they're hidden. And, and so, and you choose to hide them because you can choose to hide them. Mm-hmm. So I recognise that. So what, what I'm, re- I'm so interesting, this is like, that was just, it. I mean, it's a brilliant thing. So how, how does this then influence the training? So you, you've got, you've got a group of teachers there again wanting to do the right thing kind of thing and you go and do your training what are the kind of they they, you could do this with them and and open their awareness but so how does that translate into behaviors and stuff in school and that kind of make a difference yeah what we're doing is we're first of all we're making it safe for people to understand that we all have prejudice and bias that's the reality it's about preparing the foundation for the more what I guess people would say the difficult and uncomfortable conversations that we need to have when we think about anti-blackness and we think about doing anti-racist work and we think about work around anti-prejudice but in order for you to be ready to genuinely be inclusive of other communities and differences you first have to hold the mirror and so we do a number of these sorts of activities that forces people to hold the mirror on who they really are Once you know who you are, you know where you're starting from to begin these conversations. But I will be very honest. We could all have the same teaching material in here now, the same lesson to deliver. But but those things that make me me are going to alter the way I deliver it. The fact that I am a racialized woman, the fact that I identify as a woman, the fact that I've had a Christian upbringing, the fact that I'm Bristolian, all of those things are going to shape me. Doesn't mean I can't check my bias and make differences on how I behave. But those intersectional lenses, that spectrum of difference is important for me to understand the journey and the conversation. But often what happens is we jump straight into this conversation and we go, right, we need to talk about race and racism. We need to talk about LGBTQ+. We need to talk about all these other things. And they're important. But if I, first of all, will accept the normalization that exists in society, whose voices are usually centered and how close my proximity is to that centering experience, then this conversation becomes quite difficult and quite problematic. And so what I try to do is bring people on a journey with me where I say, I see you for where you are and I see you from the point that you're starting. This is where we're trying to get to, but I understand that that journey is not homogenous. So what I'm going to do is allow you to see yourself and where you are in your practice. 
doing these sorts of activities change the way you deliver your pastoral support. It changes the way you write your curriculum. It changes the way you lead as a leader because you're beginning to see people for who they are and not for the groupings that you might put them in because that's in our unconscious or conscious bias. Mm. Well, <laughs> it's, it's brilliant. So, you know, you must be like pretty busy then because we are we are not, booked and busy oh, yeah. right up to 2024 what bookings for like january next year and i'm like oh goodness it's wow. a good place to be in that is that is i mean it's it's good and, and i think you know the the whole thing that happened uh you know in in hackney is is is, is bit, it's important a reminder it's a shame isn't it? i mean a shame it's a, that's a trite word for it's it's terrible isn't it that it's, it's appalling like, it, it shouldn't have happened but the reality but, but, is, it is happening Floyd, in our schools. The George Floyd's, the, 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 you know, nightmare does turning the black, the BLM thing that that mushroomed after that, and then a child queue last year. And and, but I guess you know, without those things that exist, punching through the media, you know, washout, yeah, the, the the focus fades, doesn't it? And it's like you've got to keep reminding people that this is re- this is happening now. We just haven't heard about it yet, and. Yeah. Um, But the reality is, Tom, we know that this isn't new. You know, my mum was, I'm going to say was because she's retired now, but my mum was a teacher too. She was a primary school teacher. And she remembers, you know, in 1985 having the Swan Report, you know, and being told then that the education system wasn't inclusive enough, being then told about the anti-racist practice that needed to take place. Then we get the death of Stephen Lawrence. You know, we go to the McPherson Report. Again, we were told about the education experience and what needed to change. What's different now in 2020? Is it because we were in the middle of a, a pandemic? Is it because there, it was COVID? Is it because everybody's screens were watching? Is it because we were forced to reckon with something on a global um, a global sphere that we hadn't done before? But it was different this time. It was different. And I felt the difference. And I felt the energy and the commitment. And I felt for the first time, people are not just tick boxing and they're going, no. We do need to think about allyship, solidarity, performative behaviours. We do need to question the curriculum. We do need to think about our policies and processes. This feels different. But my question is, how long will the momentum continue for? Because it already feels like we're experiencing EDI fatigue. People are already getting tired. We've had the conversation. Are we not moving on? And the question is, when will it stop? Because if someone racializes black, whether schools stop doing this tomorrow or not, my skin color is not going to change. My lived experience is what it is. But we have a choice now in education as to whether we genuinely want to make a long lasting difference that becomes a golden thread within our education system, or if this is just going to be another moment in time like we've had before. And that's an individual choice, as well as a systemic and a kind of institutional decision that we need to make. It's interesting because I've been to a lot of schools and do a lot of work on curriculum. And what's really heartening is that schools are now reg- really regularly having this conversation as part of the overall curriculum conversation without yes. being prompted to have it, without it being a tokenistic day or focus on it. It's yes. genuinely hardwired into the curriculum conversation. Um, yes done really sensitively, done really thoroughly, done really rigorously. And it's I've noticed that change over the last few years. And it's it's there's a lot, don't get me wrong, and you'll know this, there is so much work still left to do. 
but it does seem to be that the question is is there now. People are yes. starting to ask that question quite diligently. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, there are a few questions that I will always pose when a school wants to work with us. And particularly where they might go, OK, Aisha, can we look at race? Fine. I will pose the questions. What does it mean to be an anti-racist educator? You tell me. I want you to tell me what does that look like? You want to be an anti-racist school? OK, well, why? What's an anti-racist school? What does that look like any different to a school that's not anti-racist? If I'm a parent or a carer and I'm sending my child to a school that's branding themselves as anti-racist, well, as a parent, what am I going to receive differently to before? If I'm a governor of an anti-racist school, what's the accountability then that I need to have on that leadership? If I have an anti-racist school in my community, what does that look like for me as the local shopkeeper or the person who runs a community centre or for the local police officer who serves that school patch? We can use these words and we can weaponize them so easily and they become quite problematic when people are using them as badges. We are anti-racist. We've done the anti-racist award. We've done this, that, whatnot. But it's not a thing. We can't achieve it in a moment. It is a continuation of a lived experience and a way of being. It is not static in time. And so what's really important for me is that when people want to go on any anti-racist or any anti-prejudice journey, you understand that it's an ever-evolving process. And the work is never done. What do you say to people? Because there is there is a, a school of thought, including amongst black teachers and head teachers, where they would say the kind of the most kind of practical re, kind of anti-racist work you could do is to make sure that the that children succeed and achieve and get good outcomes in terms of their their education alongside everybody else. And so they would say we're doing that work not through explicit uh, diversity inclusion work but through getting them a banging set of GCSE results and and that's their that's they feel is like the thing they know how to do that and they're good at it and they see black children going to university in in in, in strong numbers and they feel that's the thing so do you think that's part of it or do you see that as this wraps all together Oh, I think it's, it, it wraps all together as part of it. Like one of the outputs of demonstrating that is showing that your black and brown children are, are not failing at a rate disproportionately to your children racialized as white. Of course, you want to see attainment and progress. What's one of the number one things that you want from a school is for your child to achieve. I've got two children in secondary school. I want them to do well in spite of the fact that they're racialized as black. I want them to achieve. I want them to have the best opportunity. But what I'm also aware of is the world that they will go into as global citizens. And when I know that we are still in a place where their racialized existence can impact the healthcare, the judiciary, policing, the job opportunities, when I know that that can still affect them today, it's not enough just to think about attainment and progress. It's about thinking about them holistically and how am I preparing them as whole people? And their schools will be a massive contributor to that. They're at school more than they see me. They're at school most of the time, five days a week out of seven. So it's really important that whatever school is pouring into their cup, I want to make sure that that's richness that's going to show them abundance, but don't pour into their cup with negativity that's going to pull them back, that they feel like they're a second-class citizen because of their racialized existence. And this is why I think it's really important for us to think about the whole child. So I'm not disregarding attainment and progress. Absolutely, that's important. But are we preparing a child just for exams or are we preparing a child to be a human being who's going to step out into the world? And their education is a massive part of that. Mm. I love that line up. What are they? What was my child's school pouring into their cup? That's a great metaphor. That's real. I love it. 
So, I mean, honestly, I mean, you know, we could talk for you longer. We, we're, we're getting the, the, the signal from our producer that we're really kind of at the end now, but we haven't even talked about the whole thing about recruitment of, of teachers and the whole 26 being the original thing about black teachers. But do you think there's movement there? I mean, do you think there's been any development there or do you feel like, you know, that we've still got a long haul? Oh, we still got a long way to go. But to be fair, let's be honest, Tom, that isn't just about racialized existence. Education is is in is suffering now, regardless, whether that's about racialized existence or not. We know that recruitment into education right now is tough. It's a tough profession to be in. Long hours, you know, poor pay for some people, particularly. It, it is a hard job to do. But beyond that, when we think about the recruitment and retention, I think we need to take those things separately. Because whilst you might arguably say the numbers are increasing, there are more black and brown people wanting to go into education, applying for the PGCE, then getting jobs and securing them. That's only one part of the process, because if the retention isn't good and that attrition rate is high and as much as they're coming in, they're going back out the door, then there's still something wrong with the education system in the middle. And so what I say to schools is, yes, recruitment can be part of your strategy. It could be one of your outputs. But having a black face in your school is not going to solve the problem. And I often say to schools, particularly those that are majority racialized as white, you hire that one black teacher. Are you prepared? Are you prepared for their experience? Are you prepared for any trauma that might occur? Are you prepared for the problems that they may well experience when they come into your school? And if you're not, then are you not setting them up for failure? Do you want them to take the burden and the weight? Are they going to be that tokenistic employee just to say that we've now done it? So I think sometimes recruitment can be used as a quick and easy tool. We get a few more black and brown faces, we've solved the problem. But that's not the solution. It could be part of the solution, but it isn't the solution. But it's also about looking at the different parts of recruitment in the education system. When we think about Schools Week, did a report last year about the amount of black and brown people who are, tr are trying to apply for the PGC and they're not even getting onto the courses. So if they're not even getting onto the course to get into university, let alone lasting through the PGC, then securing their first job. And then when they get the job wanting to stay in it, there are lots of pinch points in the education process mm. that we need to go back and review. And we're just focusing on one aspect of it right here at the end. We need to go yeah, back. And, and then... And then, you know, exactly. And, the, and then when you're just a head teacher, you know, you, you reach out. But, you know, it's, it's an important thing that, I mean, Diana was fantastic with uh, Sagi. She was talking about, you know, you've got to, you've got to change your model of who you're, who you're recruiting through and the messages you're giving and the communities you're reaching. And there's a lot of work to be done. Well, look, I feel like, to be honest with you, I feel like, and if people, people are hearing you talk now, and I'll say it again, repmatters.co.uk, people are going to be like, oh, <laughs> I show into my school because that's funny. You talk, you talk with such you know conviction, but it's also that there's a you're also reminding everyone who's going to listen to this that this is this is not a, a thing you can take you know one and done. It's an ongoing process. There's a lot of elements to it. No, definitely not. And I genuinely care. And people always say to me, Aisha, why do you do what you do? Because this isn't just professional for me. It's personal. I'll be very honest. I'm invested. I've got two black boys in the education system, and I have a niece and a nephew in the education system them too if I don't make a difference if I don't keep doing this then they will be sat on a call like this in 30 years having the same conversation we've got an opportunity for change now we've got opportunity for hope so my question to us as educators right now with the privilege and the power what will be our legacy of change what will that look like 
what would it feel like and what will we do? That when we're sat in 30 years time and we're looking back, we're going, do you know what? I did something to change education and I did it for the better. Ah, amazing. Well, what a, what a great, it's just been absolutely brilliant. I love talking to you. I feel like standing up and giving a round of applause. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Listen, my kids would be laughing at you going, oh, don't give her that. No, she's laughing. Another Zoom call. But honestly, honestly, I just want to say thank you. We, we, we've got to call it, uh, you know, it's called it to an end there, but that was just electric, really. I mean, the time just flew by for me. So thank you so much. It's really You're wonderful. most welcome. And I, I hope it was useful. Yeah, really useful. So look, thank you, everyone listening to Mind the Gap, the making education work across the globe. We 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 had a great episode here with Aisha Thomas and, and there'll be lots more uh, people coming up uh, coming up soon. So keep listening, keep watching the, the YouTube clips. Thanks for listening. And once again, thanks to Aisha and goodbye from me and Emma. Thank you very much, everyone. Thanks for listening to Mind the Gap. We hope you enjoyed hearing what's on our minds today. For much more great content, make sure to check out the video version of our show, which includes additional segments and features. Visit edcircuit.com or go to YouTube and subscribe to our channel, Mind the Gap with Tom and Emma. See you next time.